Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle, for Middle East Peace. Today is Monday, February 12th, 2024, and I am very happy to have with me Aziz Al-Ghashian. Aziz mm-hmm. is a fellow at Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization, CPAD, and at the Center for Applied Research in Partnership with the Orient Carpo. He is a Saudi researcher and analyst of Saudi foreign policy who earned his PhD at the University of Essex, where he taught international relations, politics, and Middle Eastern studies. And most important for today's podcast, the focus of Aziz's current research and writing, and I'll be mentioning a bunch of his writing in this podcast, and I'll be linking to it in the show notes. Um, The focus is Saudi policy toward Israel and Arab-Israeli relations. So Aziz, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a, it's a real pleasure to join you, Laura. Thank you very much for having me. So we're going to have a great, far-reaching conversation. I want to give a quick sort of context intro uh, for people. I don't know when they'll be watching or listening to this. The context for today's call, of course, is the now more than four-month-long Israeli mm-hmm. war on Gaza, during which Israel, ostensibly for the sake of, quote-unquote, eradicating Hamas and freeing hostages taken on October 7th, um, has systematically depopulated and destroyed most of the Gaza Strip. And today, as we're recording this podcast, Israel, as of last night, is unleashing a new military offensive against Rafah, which is located right next to the border with Egypt, where more than a million uh, displaced Palestinians um, from the rest displaced from the rest of the Gaza Strip have crowded together seeking refuge. And last night was really a, a horrible night with a huge number of Palestinians killed and injured and also two um, Israeli hostages rescued. So um, once again, Israel has publicly called on Palestinians in this area, which is now being, or is about to be overrun, we fear, uh, to evacuate. But this time there is truly nowhere else left to go. Um, except potentially outside of Gaza, which um, since the beginning of this war has been the expressed objective of some people in Israel. So throughout this more than four um, months of horror, the role or potential role or aspirational role of Saudi Arabia has loomed large, mainly because Saudi Arabia is arguably one of the few parties that has something that Israel badly wants, which is normalization. And uh, it's one of the few parties that appears as yet unwilling to simply overlook Israel's treatment of Palestinians. And the as yet is important here because at least until the past couple of weeks, there still appeared to be something of a certainty or at least a very strong hope uh, among Israeli analysts and among pro-Israel pundits, including in the U.S. and the Biden administration, that some kind of grand bargain could be struck with Saudi Arabia and that such a bargain um, would be the key to, to resolving this war. And of course, such a bargain would be for the White House, a huge foreign policy achievement. And for Israel, it would be a key to securing a sort of day after, I'm using air quotes, uh, scenario that would achieve a lot of Israeli objectives, including offering Arab political cover for what Israel has done in Gaza up until now, laying the groundwork for a post-war new political status quo for Palestinians in which Palestinians have little or no agency, Um, securing Arab world buy-in and financial support, particularly Saudi support for post-war Palestinian needs, and giving the government of Israel a high-value achievement and political and economic deliverable as proof of their victory in this war. So with all of that as context, Aziz, Mm -hmm. I'm now going to let you talk. As of February 6th, 
on February 6th, I should say, the Saudi government issued a statement, and I'll link to this in the show notes, affirming, among other things, and here I'm quoting, there will be no diplomatic relations with Israel unless an independent Palestinian state is recognized on the 1967 borders with East Jerusalem as its capital, and going on that this is not possible unless the, quote, Israel aggression on the Gaza Strip stops and all Israeli occupation forces withdraw from the Gaza Strip. And I'll note the headline in the Saudi outlet, Ashokar Aussad, a couple of days later was, quote, Saudi statement puts an end to use of normalization for electoral purposes. So can you start us out today by helping me and our audience understand the purpose and meaning of this statement from the kingdom, um, including, you know, why now? What prompted it? And beyond taking the words at face value, which is pretty clear what they say, what is the intended message and to what audiences? What does it say specifically about the relationship between the Saudi government and the Biden administration? Well, thank you very much, Laura, for, for inviting me. And it's a real pleasure to join you. I've, I've been following your work for a while. Um, and so I really do appreciate um, being here with you. So thank you very much. Now, I think it's very interesting because I th this is not the first time that the Sa Saudi Arabia made these demands for the, the Palestinians and especially calling for 1967 in East Jerusalem at its capital, <clears throat> et cetera. But I think why this in particular, this, this statement is uh, of particular interest is because it came against the backdrop of uh, what the National Security Council uh, spokesperson, Kirby, I think his name is John Kirby, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm not wrong, um, said in a press conference the day before, <clears throat> that uh, essentially, uh, you know, when asked what, how was Saudi Arabia or how was the Saudi negotiations or the negotiations with Saudi Arabia and Israel um, or Saudi Arabia, Israel and the United States, uh, how is it going? Um, uh, he said, well, that's a different track than the hostage uh, element. And that's a different track than trying to have the ceasefire. Uh, and therefore, essentially, um, somewhat implicitly suggesting that the Palestine, the Saudis are just simply uh, using the Palestinians here or using the issue of Palestine to uh, to gain something from the United States. Uh, and that in, a, in essence, that this is something that they don't care about um, and they're openly negotiating. And, and this is something that I think the Saudi ruling elite has been really patient over because you know, a great deal of time. And I think, as you mentioned uh, earlier in your introduction, um, that there's a lot of hope. I would say there's a lot of uh, not only hope, but there's a lot of um, uh, desperation uh, to really see a normalization take place. I think hope is also, a, they always had hope and the, the hope has always been there. But I think in the past year, especially after the Abraham Accords, um, you know, there has been a great deal of hope and uh, there's been a great deal of desperation. And I think the Saudis and the Saudi ruling elite really sense that. And as a result, when they sense that, uh, you know, the the dynamics has altered. Um, now, alongside um, negotiations and alongside uh, insisting on uh, concessions from Israel to the Palestinians, uh, as a prerequisite for normalization, Saudi Arabia gave its own demands as well. 
And, and that was due to, in my estimation, that this, this desperation uh, that they illustrated both in Tel Aviv and in Washington, D.C. And I think what has happened also is that in this <clears throat> attempt to, to be in this desperation of, of normalization, there's been a fogginess of understanding what the Saudi position is. And that's why the, this statement was very interesting, because I think, to be fair, you know, we are not very, um, we're not very frequent with this information, with the information that we go, that we leave. It's, it's often viewed as symbolic. Um, you know, a lot of the times things happen on the Palestinian-Israeli front and people expect some, to hear something from Saudi Arabia and to hear more, and they probably don't, etc. cetera. Uh, so they assume that there is something that is not, uh, that, that they have simply given up. Uh, but I think what this shows is that, no, this is, you know, we or, or the Saudi ruling elite have said, you know, I think the Sharq al-Awsat really put it, put it uh, succinctly, stop normalizing, uh, stop, I'm sorry, stop politicizing us. And to be honest, Laura, this, this, this asks, this speaks to a very interesting point and a more important point of who is narrating Saudi Arabia? You know, for me, this is the most important, one of the most important, one, one of the things that scream out, of course, the Palestinian issue is there, and but who narrates the Saudi issue regarding the Palestinian issue globally, and, or at least whose narrative is the one that resonates mostly? And it's not the Saudi narrative. And I think there's, uh, unfortunately, not only uh, a great deal of desperation, <clears throat> but there's a great deal of, uh, you know, just like there's disinformation, there's also a disframing of the Saudi position. They like to take bits and bobs and customize Saudi statements, which are not simple. You know, it's not direct because for Saudi Arabia, what they see in Israel, I'm sorry, what they see, they see the Israeli file as part of a, a broader American file, not necessarily as a bilateral relationship. So this is not a bilateral relationship. This is this is a this is a the Saudi-Israeli relations is a trilateral relationship, and as a result, this is a cause for fogginess. And I think this ecosystem of fogginess, this machine of fogginess, comprises of a great deal of desperation. And and from 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 Tel Aviv, there's um, I I I wrote uh, not too long ago in the summer there was there's a strategic speculation comes out of Israel that, huh, something's happening, stand by, stand by, everyone, for their own political purposes. And then in Washington, D.C., what's very interesting is that normalization has now kind of seemed to have uh, uh, been absorbed into the, 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 the politics within Washington, D.C. You tell me if I'm right or wrong, but that's, that's my perception. And then there's a very uh, significant, uh, there, there's a very... Um, fluid Saudi discourse towards Israel. It's always been fluid. And just to give an example, and, I, and then I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up because I tend to talk too much, so forgive me. But, um, uh, you know, Saudis have always been good at yes, but. They vote, you know, the, the Saudi willingness to have peace with Israel is nothing new. The Saudi willingness to have normalization with Israel is nothing new. But they always had that but. And I always spoke to people, and I was like, and I, and I always say, it reminds me of that song, I like big butts and I cannot lie there. There's just so many, it's just the butt there. 
and basic and and you can't ignore this big but but the thing is people don't want to see what they said before you know they so you see people saying yes israel uh we could have cooperation with israel we could have normalization with israel we could have but this 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 very big but at the at, at their the palestinian issue a just settlement the arab peace initiative i think in this fogginess and this discourse they've always looked at the pre what is before the condition is there and therefore they get to play with it and i think the saudi statement had illustrated that they've reached the limit of this of this discussion and in my in or this 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 politicization and in my opinion i i anticipate now people will take what dc and tel aviv say about saudi israeli relations or saudi relations vis-a-vis -vis the palestinians and israelis with a lot more of a pinch of salt so, so I want to say I, I I agree with your your assessment of Washington and normalization. I I was speaking and you heard me recently talk about normalization as the unobtainium of the diplomatic process. It's the rare the rare element that we think exists may exist, hard to find. But if we had it, it would fix everything. Yeah. Um, I will say that you are the first person I've ever had on a podcast to reference Sir Mixalot, um, which alone is is awesome. Um, so we're going to come back to Saudi official statements in a second. I want to ask you, though, to, to take a step back yeah. um, from the current events, and we'll come back to them. And I want to ask you to talk about a piece, or to, to you, I want to talk to you about something else you wrote about in November 2022, which I think the first time I actually became really interested in your work. I, I saw this. It was entitled, mm -hmm. The Depth of the Palestinian Ingredient in Saudi Political Identity and Projection. And I'll, I'll have a link. And I'm going to quote you here. You, you wrote, Saudi identity and the kingdom's history with the Palestinians is a major reason preventing the Saudi ruling elite from jumping on the Abraham Accords wagon, as the role of the Palestinian cause in Saudi identity is deep and complex. What is more, there are elements within Saudi social, political, and social and political discourses that have further entrenched the Palestinian cause in Saudi identity. Saudi projection of the kingdom's service to Islam, socio-political narratives championing Saudi kings and commitment to the Arab peace initiative embed the Palestinian cause in Saudi identity and help explain why Saudis may not be in favor of embracing Israel, at least in public. And then as we come back in a more recent piece that you wrote about the Arab peace initiative, we're going to talk about the API in a little bit. You noted Saudi pragmatism towards Israel, I'm quoting, has often been conflated with a disvalue of Palestinian rights. This is certainly a misreading. And you go on to add such a misunderstanding is used by political elites in Israel to isolate the Palestinians further from regional normalization. Just before the eruption of the war, the Israeli prime minister tried to push the narrative that Saudis no longer care about the Palestinians and that negotiations should negate any regard for Palestinian rights. Um, so with all of that in mind, can you talk about mm -hmm. how Palestinians, talk more about this, as a people and a cause, figure mm -hmm. into Saudi political identity and, and in that way figure into what the Saudi government's um, own thinking is when it comes to their public positioning, the limits on their public positioning, and how that shapes or limits their room to maneuver on policy. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, it's very interesting. And let me just say this. Uh, I, as you mentioned also in your introduction, when you introduced me in your very generous uh, introduction, you said 
um, that I, I did my PhD in the University of Essex, basically in the United Kingdom. Let me, let me share with you this. And this is something that really came up as I was living here. Researching about Saudi Arabia outside of Saudi Arabia is very different than researching about Saudi Arabia within Saudi Arabia. And as doing Saudi, studying the same topic, but in a different place, I had a very different perspective. I'll be honest. And it, and it really did change. And I must say, when I was in the UK, I didn't see that. When I lived, began to live in Saudi because of COVID and, and, and everything came back, I, I had a better understanding, a real, I mean, I'm Saudi Arabian, I was still Saudi Arabian a couple of years ago, but I mean, when, when living here, you get to see how this, this is entrenched in, in Saudi identity. And what I meant by that is by projecting itself, by championing itself, because there is also a rise in Saudi nationalism in past few years. And part of that nationalism at times could be addressing anybody that is standing against uh, Saudis. And sometimes the Palestinian issue gets caught up in that. But one of the aspects that I find very fascinating is that when there is this boasting of leadership, uh, boasting of honor, and the fact that you know the Saudis have not yielded to uh, this Western pressure, this West Western pressure of trying to normalize relations with Israel, have not re really, it, and it's not also just yielded to Israel or yielded to the United States, which is still actually very prominent in the social discourses, because unfortunately, <clears throat> they still, you know, the, the perception of the United States is still viewed as the orchestrator of a lot of trouble. Um, you know, and, and they see this, for example, in its response in the Arab Spring. They see this in the response to the JCPOA. They see this and they're like, huh, you, you know, they, they're conspiring against us. So, and therefore, when you have an American president that's trying to push for normalization, and they say no, and the Saudi ruling elite, no, this gives a great sense of pride. And then all of a sudden, this is where you see how the Palestinian issue is here. We, we refuse to, to yield to this and, and look at an, an, an example of this is the, the fact that we have not normalized relations with the Palestinians uh, and that, you know, the Palestinians is, is a cause. Look at that. And as a result of that, uh, of that just cause, as a result of the, the iniquity they face, we haven't yielded. And that's not something that happened then. That's something that we see now, especially after that statement. Because even kings, especially King Faisal, who was the the the, the, the king during the 1973 Ramadan Yom Kumpur War, he is still lionized by Saudis till now. Till now. So it's, it, you know, the fact that, and especially now against this horrendous, campaign and this 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 atrocious campaign that they're that, 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 that they're at the receiving end now the Palestinian issue is back on on the on the, on the 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 psyche of many Saudis uh there's no going around it and where is the Saudi kind of position the Saudis see these statements and it just entrenches the Palestinian issue in the Saudi identity so it's kind of used also to project 
So there's an element of it of support, and there's an element of it as as uh, a, 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 a mechanism of even projecting more nobleness and honor. Uh, and therefore, whether it's uh, kind of uh, either or, if it's for the Palestinian issue uh, explicitly, or if it's for projecting leadership per se, it's still entrenched. And what this does is that, in my opinion, it just makes the cost of normalization higher because the public discourse is altering. And also, it just makes sure that the Palestinian issue can't go anywhere. And the, and the Saudi ruling elite and their calculation, it's, you know, it, there has to be, it, ha it must be, it must be a significant element because without it, it is, I'm not really sure it could be legitimized. So that, and I think they know this very well. And just the last point on this. So I said before, I think in that piece in 2022, that they were lionized, that, that uh, King Faisal, for example, was lionized. Right now, what has taken place after that statement, um, uh, the, the, the February 6th statement, MBS uh, pictures um, of, of MBS and King Faisal were, were uh, a portrait of them and images of them kind of sitting together, looking at each other, kind of a split screens of them kind of sitting. And so MBS was likened to someone as revered as King Faisal. And now you see how this is how the issue is plays in and 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 exists and manifests in Saudi identity and projection. And you even hear it time and again, even in, in Saudi social discourses, that we're not the ones to yield, that we still withheld to the Palestinian issue. And just the last point, uh, this is part of our social, uh, social political fabric. Other countries don't have that part as part of their social political fabric. And as a result, that gives them more space to embrace Israel a bit more or embrace Israel with less elements to the Palestinian issue. Uh, so that's regarding, I think, the first part of your question. And then there's the, the other one that I wrote about the uh, Arab Peace Initiative, et cetera. But I mean, it, I don't know if you want me to expand upon that or I, well, I, mean, I, I, I want to come back to the Arab Peace Initiative in a little while. I yeah. I think the, your answer is really it's it's very helpful because those of us who are um, who are trying to analyze what the Saudi thinking is, I mean, what you you talked about the strategic speculation before, there's a tremendous amount of strategic speculation which is is on a fairly constant basis making the argument that that the Palestinian issue is largely irrelevant to Saudi thinking, Saudi calculations, to the extent that it's being raised, it's being raised basically as a red herring to try to like wrest other concessions or it's a negotiating tactic. Um, and, and you seem to be suggesting quite strongly that's not the case. I actually would wonder after October 7th when you have what's happening in Gaza being live streamed, and even if most Americans are not watching it, my sense is that across the region, um, you know, between TikTok and 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 regional um, news, um, people are watching what is looking like a live stream genocide. So that seems to even it, 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 that seems to suggest that what you're saying now would be even more true after October seventh than it was before. Yeah, and I agree with you. And and I think not only that, not only is it the sentiments, the social sentiments. Uh, not only the public opinion, but but there's another the regional opinion because I think Saudi Arabia also cares about regional 
you know, there, there's a regional legitimacy to this too, because again, in the, just before leading up to October 7th or just leading up to October 7th. So from the onslaught, uh, from, 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 you know, 2022, 2023, you could see Saudi as it was established, after it was established more domestically, because there were a lot of issues domestically that was still not solved. Uh, that was still, I would say, contingent. Um, uh, and, and I would say from 2015 to 2020 and 22, after that was resolved, you see now Saudi re-emerging as a regional player and also as a regional leader. And I think it senses this. And I think there's a new tacit bid for leadership in the region. So that's one element. But I think also the more significant one and more pertinent to October 7th, I think before the Saudi perspective, the Saudi lens on the Palestinian issue was one of a normative lens, whether it's a, an Arab lens that it viewed the situation, um, a normative lens, an Islamic lens. And these are the things that that kind of they, they viewed it. Now there's something deeper. Or I'm sorry, I won't say it's something. There's something else, which is now they're viewing it from a regional security lens. Because in my opinion, looking at the, what the Saudis were saying before, they were saying, listen, we the region cannot move on with this occupation there. The, res the resolution of the Palestinian-Israeli question must be addressed if we in the re if we want to move on and prosper prosper in the region in my estimation this seems like a security issue and it was viewed as a theoretical concern after october 7th it became an, a real concern it became an empirical clear explicit concern and that's what i think now saudis are seeing this and also saudi is trying to make cause a in, in, more integrated region. And as a result, spillover effects now uh, are, are become a lot quicker. Um, and therefore, I think it understands that, um, you know, it, 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 the reason why uh, a, a great deal of this turbulence is down to the occupation. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it is the beacon of this. And actually today I had a few discussions with with, uh, uh, with, with my friends. We were, we were, we were talking in a, in a working, working session that we have sometimes. And, um, you know, we, we, we were saying how um, the thing on the, on the, on the Red Sea, uh, the Houthis and what they're doing. And what's very fascinating about how Saudis see this, they don't see it detached from what's taking place in Gaza. They say it is linked. And there, there's like this kind of tactical rhetorical jostle of, um, is it linked? Is it not linked? No, this is something because, you know, the Houthis are just crazy. Okay, the Houthis, that's a different story. But 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 what's interesting is that it's, it's interesting how Saudi Arabia sees this as uh, linked and the... What's taking place in Gaza now is an amplification of a great deal of these security threats that are um, that are happening in the region are, that are present and that are dormant. So you have these non-state actors that are there. They require a great deal of sensitivity and a, a, a very 
delicate mix of diplomacy, a little bit of deterrence, a little bit of incentive, a little, you know, it's a very delicate situation to deal with these things. And then all of a sudden erupts the situation in, in, in Gaza and then everything just gets amplified security wise again. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, 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 uh, that's how that's the regional security issue, uh, is, is one of the, is one of essence. Well, that actually is a really good lead into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is in my introduction, I laid out what in my mind are some of the key U.S. and Israeli objectives um, wrapped up in the efforts to re to have this grand deal with Saudi um, Israel normalization. Um, but looking back to December, you wrote a really, really interesting piece in foreign policy entitled How Saudi Arabia Could Use Its Leverage in Gaza. Um, and you wrote, and quoting, before Riyadh steps up and shows greater assertiveness on this issue, the Saudi ruling elites need to see a clear political horizon and an improved structure to the peace process. At that point, they might use their considerable financial leverage to shape the outcome. So I want you to dig in a little bit about what leverage Saudi sees itself as having. I mean, maybe it's just the financial part, maybe it's more, um, and potentially would be willing to employ including with respect to Israeli hopes or even expectations that Saudi will lead in footing the bill for Palestinian needs the day after, um, whatever the day after is and whatever that is, uh, the Gaza war ends. So you can, can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So um, I, the question of leverage here uh, is very fascinating because I think the dynamics of leverage has changed. And before, so b just before how Saudi tried to use its leverage on this uh, to to exert pressure to bring a, a better outcome from the Palestinians is that their relationship is with the United States and it was one of resources and oil and arms, et cetera. Uh, and therefore the Saudis would use the leverage of what they have with the United States and then they will hope that the United States could use its leverage on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Uh, so it's a, it's a long kind of uh, road to norm, to, to, to lev of leverage. It's quite, in, and it's indirect. It's quite indirect. It, it's very indirect, yes. And, and, it, and it's complex, you know. Uh, but that, the, the dynamic of leverage has changed and because of the Abraham Accords. And it's so fascinating now. And, and the reason why Saudi has so much leverage, in my opinion, is because it's not in what it's doing. It's in its in it it, it is in what it is not doing, which is normalized relations. So that so there's leverage, there are two spheres now. So Saudi Arabia has two spheres of leverage now, two aspects of leverage that it's very fascinating. So this is before October 7th. That as a result, okay, as a result of the Abraham Accords, there's this great deal of expectation. And unfortunately, people look at the, the Gulf in a monolithic fashion. They're all, they all have funny things on their head. Uh, they all kind of have nice, uh, beautiful, dark milk chocolatey skin. And, 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 and therefore, you know, these people all look alike, talk alike, whatever. This is the perception of, of Gulf Orientalism, because this is one of the things that I wanted to also touch upon. And then 
then you know it's like what what, what am, the united arab emirates kind of normalized what's wrong with saudi what, what's happening is that whoa, whoa, saudi what, what, what's going on so as a result this is what caused this desperation to normalize relations and they're saying hey you know and saudi then said look if you want to normalize this is what you have to do as a result the 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 power was in saudi arabia's hands now after october 7 and all this notion and of trying to reconstruct the Gaza on, on very, I would say, let me just put it mildly, very um, unwise uh, deduction and unwise per perception, uh, in other words, nonsense, uh, that was coming out of uh, Tel Aviv and especially Netanyahu, which is that, yeah, don't worry. The reconstruction of Gaza is left to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and the in the Gulf. And for me, one of the things that I wrote about, or what I what I what I tried to even expand upon, was that you know how insulting this was. The fact that you you may think that firstly we don't care about this issue so much that we're just going to re rebuild it rebuild it for who, for you for your security, you know. And secondly, the Saudis are not unwilling to do this, but why would they do this? So it goes back to the question, I'm sorry, but why would they do this for, for no political horizon? So for me, this is this goes back again to this question of narrative. And this is where it really touches upon the notion of Gulf Orientalism or orientalizing the Gulf, as in we in the GCC uh, are viewed as these, uh, a, the ATM of the world, as if our job is simply to throw money at other people's problems. And moreover, uh, as people that are that spend first and think later, and that we're irrational, that we just, you know, here's some money, here's some money. And th this is how I think it struck a chord also with me as a, someone from the GCC. And I said, well, firstly, you know, Saudis are not, would be happy to support the Palestinians financially. That's what they've been doing for a while anyway. But why would they? And especially the fact that a lack of construction of Gaza suggests that there's a security threat for Israel, that they are actually con this campaign can be contributing towards Israel's insecurity in the long run later on. And maybe even in the near term as well. Uh, uh, but that's a different issue. And therefore, in order to rebuild it properly, will require funds. But what are the Saudis going to, you know, do you think they're going to do it for free? There must be a Palestinian issue. This must be a, a, a political horizon. And there must be not only a political horizon of promises. I think in my opinion and, and in my research of Saudi policy towards Israel, Saudi done a lot of significant steps for Israeli promises. So, for example, it reduced a great deal of layers within the boycott, the Arab boycott of Israel. For, because of the because of the Oslo Accords, and in fact, a lot of people don't know this, but Saudi was willing to remove its boycott on Israel for in exchange for um, freezing of settlements during the Shamir government, but the Shamir government insisted. So, again, I think Saudi now also you're talking about a different Saudi. Saudi is not. In, uh, in 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 the spend now and, and investment in the long run, it's it's far more transactional. 
because Saudi also has a great deal of its dilemmas too. It's restructuring its, you know, it's uh, it's restructuring its economy as well, and therefore it has to make sense for it. And Saudi, in my opinion, it will be happy to give these funds to rebuild it, but as a result, this cannot be for free politically. This must be some elements. Uh, and that's now the other layer of leverage that they have. That's that's really, I mean, I, I, I really appreciate what you're explaining here and particularly the, the Gulf Orientalism piece of it because there does seem to be this sense of a, a monolithic, almost caricatured Gulf, which is perfectly happy to to normalize and do whatever and, and eff effectively become the tools of, of permanently preventing any Palestinian agency because of economic benefits or political payoffs. And I think you are you are challenging that with a much more nuanced and complex view of things. So I appreciate that. I want to um, I want to come back to sort of the the Saudi state of mind, which we're yeah. all, as you said, there aren't a lot of statements that come out. So we're all left to sort of parse the yeah. statements that do come out. On January 27th, I've been looking at all the Saudi statements that have come out since October 7th. And and the last there's a couple recent ones that really struck me. So on, on January 27th, the Saudi government issued a statement welcoming the decision of the International Court of Justice. Um, this was the case of uh, genocide that the South African government brought. Uh, the quote was it, wel it welcomed the decision to, quote, put an end to all, that aims to put an end to all acts and declarations aimed at a real genocide against the Palestinian people in the besieged Gaza Strip. So it is using the term genocide, which I thought was remarkable. It mm. also stressed, quote, the importance of the international community taking further measures for a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip, providing protections to the Palestinian people, holding the Israeli occupation forces accountable for all their systematic violations of international law and international humanitarian law. And I'd seen language from the Saudi government before talking about the need for Israel to respect international law. I hadn't seen language that seemed to suggest systematic violations. That felt like an escalation in language. And then just a couple of days ago, as we as Israel announced the the on what was going to be this this new offensive in, in Rafah, um, on February 10th, the ministry issued a statement warning of, quote, the very serious repercussions of storming and targeting the city of Rafah and the Gaza Strip. And it affirmed its, quote, categorical rejection and condemnation of the forcible deportations of Palestinians in Rafah. Goes on to say this, con quote, this continued violation of international law and international humanitarian law confirms the need for an urgent convening of the U.N. Security Council to prevent Israel from causing an imminent humanitarian disaster for which everyone who supports the aggression is responsible. Again, it's a very pointed language that feels like an escalation. It appears to be calling for and embracing a UN role. It appears to be an implicit um, elbow at America and others who are preventing action at the UN. So I want to ask you, what should we make of this language? Has there been a shift in tone since October 7th, or am I imagining it? Is it, is it, is it important, the use of the word genocide, um, back in January, and is it important? Um, just a couple of days ago, this endorsement of UN action and and language about repercussions, which is it seemed that word seemed quite striking to me. Um, and and assuming that there is a shift here, I, I guess I want you to, to to speculate a bit a little bit about if there are if what we're seeing now is the emergence of red lines, lines that shall not be crossed. And I'm thinking here particularly with respect to um, the deportation of Palestinians from Gaza, which 
sort of suggests, I think for a lot of us, a regional refugee crisis. Yeah. Um, and and if if those are red lines, what what would be the repercussions in Saudi policy uh, for crossing them? I, thank you very much for this. And, you know, there's one thing that kind of uh, appeared to me when when you're reading these uh, statements is that I don't think a lot of people read Saudi statements. Uh, I think a lot of people read about what others say about Saudi uh, and not the Saudi statements themselves. And that's one thing that I've tried to always do is say, okay, uh, a lot of people like to dismiss them and say, no, 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 but surely there, there's something else involved, which goes back to the, to, the, to the misleading notion that you kind of alluded to or you mentioned explicitly before that, you know, there's just this dismissal, there's this intention to d dismiss Saudi. And I think, you know, that... You, you can never uh, negate what is said publicly and officially, for goodness sake. That is the policy. So there's there, I'll even add something else to these things. Officially, Saudi Arabia rejects the notion that this is a, a self-defense operation, that this was self-defense. And they've said that in, even in November and even in the United Nations. They said that we even reject the notion that this is even anything has to remotely to do with self-defense. So the 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 you know it, earlier in in the campaign, um, Israel was trying to get uh, any kind of nugget of information or hint from uh, the Saudis, any kind of statement, something to illustrate the saying. Well, don't worry, the Saudis and 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 the it, it, UAE people are uh, and and the GCC people they're with us don't worry don't worry and they didn't get that and one of the aspects that they used here is that Saudi not normally or naturally or traditionally I will say takes takes time before they make a statement uh they they don't so if you look at for example the Abraham Accords it took six days to make a statement six days it, it, desert storm and desert desert shield. Desert Shield and Desert Storm, it took five days to make their position clear. They, they, this is a calculated bunch. And, and, and contrary to what many people perceive them, they're calculated. And I think that's precisely why the, the, the speed in which they make these statements. And the first day they said that we have been warning. This is the first statement that came out on October 7th or October 8th. We have been warning the international community that there's something explosive taking place. And this was a result of the repercussion of, of the instigations taking place by these governments. Now, uh, by this government. Um, so it's very fascinating how that was quick. And I think when it comes to the Saudi calculation, the perception also changed. What is also very fascinating is to see what was said on the social political aspect, or in other words, the social discourse, kind of step in or enter into the official discourse, which is hypocrisy. And a great deal of this, and you, you alluded to this, or you mentioned, I'm sorry, you didn't, you, you mentioned to this explicitly, which is, yeah, I think it was a nudge to the United States. And you're right, all these things, because now it's very clear that the United States is really the one that's being perceived as the main facilitator, the main cover of the Israeli aggression. And that's just becoming clear. And that's becoming very, very problematic. And that's only exasperating Western perceptions in the Middle East 
in general. And, uh, you know, here, there's some, just some of the, yeah, some of the points that uh, you, you mentioned. So w w there is an evolution in the sharpness of the language and there is an evolution of the tone. So there's another aspect is that the tone in itself became, and there's one thing here that it became explicit, that that's why these statements became, so they're really hinting, okay, the United, you know, the, 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 the security council, we're calling on the, they're clearly hinting that, okay, there's the, the flaw, the international flaw is there, that this is one second, you know, and um, this is a, a it, it, it's illustrating the hypocrisy and double standards of a great deal of, of um, many of you. This is, again, not only the United States and the West, but it's also speaking to the, you know, against the backdrop of the Russian invasion of Ukraine which is another horrible thing that's happening, but the response was completely different. And, and that didn't help. Or that, I wouldn't say that didn't help. That may, that illustrated the point that I was like, oh, wow. It was, only, it was only a few months ago, a year and a half ago, that Ukrainian flags were fly, being flown everywhere. Everyone's calling about the quote, boycott. Now, Palestinian flags are not allowed to be anywhere. And, and in places in Germany, et cetera, and, and they feel they're being... Not I want to say prosecuted, but crack down. So they sense this, and and they sense what's facilitating it. And people aren't stupid, you know. If people aren't stupid, and the, and the Saudi society, they're not. They're they're aware that what's facilitating all of this is the United States. And another thing to 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 put on top of that too, they see that in the maritime coalition against the Houthis right now. So hold on. When Saudi Arabia was saying to the world that the Houthis is actually a very big problem, and but the world was going against us. Now, because of shipping lanes and because of Israel, you're, you're orchestrating this? And especially that we are trying to, to, to calm things down with the Houthis now. Uh, you're you're exasperating this again, you know, or you're using tactical measures with strategic implications on us. So there's just a clear uh, lack of harmony in how how they're they're perceiving, and they don't want to take the cost of any of this lack of harmony. And they're just starting to see that, you know, the short sightedness of a great deal of Western uh, actions are are tactical. Uh, don't have enough consideration for the strategic um, implications of for for the Arab countries and particularly Saudi Arabia and that this heinous operation that's taking place now in Gaza is also another uh, illustration that there is just not enough consideration for us and clearly and just like what King Abdullah Jordan said that's like well our lives doesn't seem to matter more than other people's lives um, and on the, on the, on the, you know, and, and, and just maybe just a, a tiny few words on this as well. And other people will say the same thing that our lives doesn't matter as much as there. And there is this accusation. And this is the reason why we are not ready for normalization. This is the reason why normalization is, is we're just not ripe because the entire 
world, the eyes of those interested, most of them at least, especially the ones that are politically invested in this, they're focusing on normalization. They haven't focused enough on peace. And that's why it's time to start focusing on the peace, which will then be the bedrock to normalization. And if those who are saying that they're going to want normalization now, then you know that they have really bad intentions and that they're trying to normalize, have normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which I don't anticipate will happen, to remove any kind of last bit of leverage that will be used on Israel for the Palestinians. And, that, and I think the Saudis are understanding the weight of this. Yeah, no, that that's that's really interesting. The the piece about the Houthis and the domestic perception for Saudis of the uh, international focus now on the Houthis is, is really I had I actually had not I I, I hadn't thought about that. It's it's really it's a it's a key point for you know the sort of myopia we have with our own interests and not. I think there's often a um, a forgetfulness that comes when people analyze normalization, a forgetfulness about domestic politics of the countries that are supposed to be normalizing, partly be, because we've been told that they don't really have domestic politics, um, yeah. which is just not true. Um, not all right, I have two more questions, and both of them are more looking ahead questions. So I want to shift gears for a minute. You published a piece recently entitled, A Revived Arab Peace Initiative from Saudi Arabia Could Save the Middle East. Um, we're talking here about the API, so I'll be using the term API henceforth. In that piece, you talk about the original goal of the API and how it, its political purpose, how people use it, has evolved since 2002 when it was first uh, released. And you conclude, quote, the October 7 war is yet another tragic illustration of the results of a faulty policy of, quote, kicking the can down the road, which is not only a failure, but a strategic mistake with consequences for regional security. That is precisely why the API must be rearticulated with more explicit language in a more clearly defined peace process with a more involved Saudi role on the negotiating table as it, unlike the Abraham Accords, has the necessary building blocks and references for reaching a Palestinian-Israeli settlement. So you clearly have put a lot of thought into this. I want you to dig deeper into what you mean. What okay. would an updated and strengthened API look like? Um, how do you think it would find more traction than it did over the past 20 years? And what would a more involved Saudi role be? Because I was, I'm was i old enough to remember back in 2002 and the release of this thing, this amazing um, opportunity, which the Saudi regime basically put out there and put a tremendous amount of political capital on the line by, by releasing and then sort of stepped back, um, mm. which allowed at the time for folks to remember, it allowed the Israelis to argue that it was a trap. That the whole yeah. idea of regional normalization was a trap. The whole thing was trap. So how how would it be different this time? No, and and you're right. There is. Um, I mean, I I I remember it. Um, and in 2002, and 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 just to, just to say, to, there was two things happening at the time in the world. There was an intifada, because it was a response of the intifada. It was a result of the intifada. Uh, and secondly, 9-11 was happening too. Uh, it was just after 9-11. And as a result, American-Saudi uh, relations were incredibly tense. Very, very tense. Um, and that's an important issue because that's where I think looking forward, where how can we get the uh, an American push and a Saudi push more uh, in sync uh, for the future? 
But just a few words on the Arab Peace Initiative. So you're right, the way they articulated and stood back and that it was therefore designed not as uh, a diktat because a great deal of what is some Israelis, um, not all Israelis, there, there's some, there are some Israelis that say this was a, a clear missed opportunity, but that some who rejected it say that this is a diktat, that this was a take it or leave it approach. And this is can't be further from the truth because what the Saudi foreign minister then said, Prince Saud al-Faisal, he said the, the strength of the Arab Peace Initiative is that it doesn't go into the details that it is basically up for the negotiation. And then they said, well, is it negotiable? He said, oh, it is negotiable. That it is to start, and in 2007, it was re-articulated again. And he said that the aim of the Arab Peace Initiative is to start negotiations. So therefore, the 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 it's important to look at, the, I would suggest to look at not just the language of the API, but the language around the API by Saudi Arabia act as this kind of explication, as in making this language, it was designed to be implicit, to get Arab consensus and facilitate norm, uh, negotiations with Israel. And therefore that's its strength. But at the same time, if people don't wanna pick up the signals, then, or people could use it to say, well, it's not explicit enough. You know, you clearly don't say that. And therefore, uh, it, it is not strong enough. And uh, no, you know, instead, let's look at other things. Let's look at the era, uh, the, the Abraham Accords, or let's look at a different approach because at the heart of the Arab Peace Initiative was the in-out in approach, as in solve the issue and then go out. Now, someone like, you know, others, I remember it was uh, Yamus Adlin, uh, in 2014, where he met Turkil Faisal, Prince Turkil Faisal, um, uh, who was the Saudi director of intelligence from 1977 to 2001, uh, and now meets unofficially in some of these uh, dis platforms to discuss with former Israeli officials to explicate the Arab Peace Initiative and say, listen, it's designed to be this, just accept it, and, and we could negotiate all of these things. Um, and there, and the response is no, no, no. You know what? Let's move out. Let's 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 have normalization, and this will then go into the issue, uh, solve the issue. And here is where I think this is what the Abraham Accords is emblematic of. It's an emblematic of the fact that no, of the out-in approach. But in fact, I don't think it was the out-in. They've normalized relations, UAE, Bahrain, normalized relations, and then they may address the issue. But they've been tested. And any kind of look examination of the Abraham Accords, firstly, the Abraham Accords is 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 a, a series of bilateral agreements, not a multilateral agreement like the Arab Peace Initiative was. So it was a, a series of bilateral agreements. And in that bilateral agreement, it was all kind of designed to circumnavigate, dance around the Palestinian issue and to constitute and entrench that relationship and protect it away from any regional turbulence that we see now, for example. So we've seen that in May 2021, and then we're seeing it now. And therefore, people are saying, don't worry, we're going to leverage it for the Palestinians. How? 
there isn't any. There isn't any leverage. And because they don't have UN Security Council 242, there isn't 3338, 338, not 3338, just from uh, 338, unlike the Arab Initiative. Now, the Arab Peace Initiative, this implicit discussion, this implicit communication, this goes back now, we're going back to the Arab Peace Initiative. I think it's time to be more explicit now. I think it's time to say no. L let us really sit down, be very explicit with what we want and what are the conditions for normalization. And here, I think where I say the Saudis could be in the in, in on, on the table, is that I'm trying to speak to a fundamentally flawed paradigm of the kind of um, the peace process, where the peace process had the Palestinian element and then the Israeli element and the protector of the United, uh, the United States, which is, can be argued sometimes as more Catholic than the Pope. So you have a regional power an occupied people, a regional power, followed by the superpower. And it's basically structured, structurally impossible. It was structurally doomed to fail. And by putting Saudi Arabia now in that final discussions, and the, the discussions, that, that's a different topic. No, not, Nothing is ripe now for discussions. We have to stop what's happening. But in the future, I think the Saudis will be in the and should be on 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 that table to reduce that symmetry, and and to provide the necessary wiggle room and incentives to 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 get it cross that you know to cross to get it to cross that line, and I because for me I think what infuriates me and motivates me at the same time as a researcher was seeing how tangible peace could have been. Peace could have been really tangible. It was actually not that far off. Ha but had, you know, notwithstanding the, the, the structurally flawed, the, the lack of harmonious regional and international push, if, there, if all these things just were addressed, I think we could really, do, you know, we could really get it. And, and I may be idealistic. I mean, I, I, what, you, what you are articulating certainly is how it felt in 2002. There was a moment of extraordinary hope and promise there, and then it it crashed pretty quickly. Yeah. But I, I, I appreciate what you're laying out as something that is certainly an aspiration once we get past the current yeah. crisis. So in my final question, I've kept you much longer than I like to keep people for podcasts. I apologize, but I just so appreciate your perspectives. I want to ask you to pull out that, that damned crystal ball, which we all hate. Um, and sort of given where things stand today, um, which is pretty horrific, I, I, I guess I want your thoughts on where you see Saudi's role right now. Um, mm. And here we're talking again, we're now, for some of us, we've been talking for more than four months about the likelihood of Palestinians, quote unquote, voluntarily migrating out of Gaza after they've been pushed and there's nowhere else to go. I mean, things like a huge refugee, a new refugee problem in, uh, issue in the region, th that has regional implications that are almost um, unfathomable right now in terms of stability of, of, of various countries. And I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on what how Saudi sees its role at that time, including pressure from the U.S., that's the Biden administration now, and potentially pressure from a second Trump administration, bearing in mind that, that the Saudi government has 
had at least historically in the last time around a very good relationship with yeah. with the Trump administration. So I guess like looking from assuming things, there isn't something that suddenly happens to put us on a better course in the next couple of weeks or days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What you think the Saudi role is besides uh, few and far between statements that I would agree with you need to be taken seriously. Generally, as a diplomat, you know, you learn that the, the less someone says, the more you should pay attention to what they do say. Um, yes. yes, exactly. And this is your, this is the last question. So anything you want to say, say it here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so this is what I will say. I'll, 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 uh, I, I would say just let me just touch on the, the Trump aspect. So, yes, relations between Saudi Arabia and Trump or the Trump administration and the Saudi ruling elite were good, but they weren't very good uh, because uh, and actually a, a lot, I think because there was a, a chemistry at the elite level. But in fact, I think one of the reasons why Saudi Arabia is, is really contemplating diversifying its international strategy a lot more, international security strategy a lot more, uh, is because of uh, Trump's uh, lack of willingness to protect Saudi Arabia when he was attacked in, in, in 2019. And so as in addition, this is the same Donald Trump who said, well, Saudis, you won't live two weeks without me. Um and he said this before. Now, he said this to a different Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia now is going to be different than when he comes. So, and and I think the Saudis will be keen to make sure that that that's the case. So it's so I, I think the question the ball is really also here in the region. What what's going to happen here? In my opinion, there is already movement um and coordination uh regarding what is going to take place and what is going to happen um, between amongst the Arabs. And now with Egypt, Jordan, Qatar, UAE, and the Palestinians. Um, and they met in Riyadh last Thursday. There was a ministerial meeting at the foreign ministry level where they were coordinating basically what is happening how can this uh, how can they synchronize their efforts and in my opinion what is taking place security wise this is really the the top security i don't think anybody has a a real um i don't think anybody's is overly different i think maybe the uae maybe different because i the uae lens is different the uae because of its size and its position and its interests, uh, it sees a lot more opportunities than it does see security threats and existential security threats. So therefore, the calculation is different. But right now, there's a clear Arab, you know, in that minilateral Arab leadership front, they're they're making, you know, they, they, the the pushing in of refugees, not only to uh, Egypt, but the threat of it going and spilling over into Jordan will cause incredible amount of instability. And quite frankly, in my opinion, I'm not really sure uh, that now people see enough strategic utility in Israel any longer. The perception of strategic utility of Israel has, has been diminished. Israel now has clearly become a cost. Now it does have economic relations, et cetera. Okay, that that that's another thing. But when it comes to security, which is the most important thing for a lot of these countries, 
it's become a burden. Uh, and what I anticipate now is the response that they're coordinating the response. I'm, I anticipate a very uh, anxious Middle East right now. And I think they're really focusing on what they could approach the United States with. Because I think this this is going to this is because they they you know they don't have a great deal of pressure on Israel. They're trying to pressure the United States or do something in the United States there. So I think that's what's happening. It's very hard to tell, to be honest, Laura. I mean, what's what's going to happen? Because you know, uh, and to be honest with you, there's always been a red line, and then they shifted, and then the red line, and then there's another red line, and then there's another red line. Uh, and it's also what what are they going to do? In I'll just also add in there just I'm, if you want to comment the question of UNRWA because when we're talking about people yeah. are focused on UNRWA in Gaza because that's what Israel wants to focus on yeah. right now. But if the the current effort appears to destroy UNRWA, appears to be yeah. about destroying UNRWA completely, which has implications in particular in Jordan and in Lebanon and also in Syria. Um, which are, I mean, it, it, you start thinking about this, the regional security implications of the end of UNRWA, and I, I feel like, I feel like analysts of the current situation are are are, are not really paying close attention there. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it, you, and and thank you for for bringing this in because I think, well, the the UNRWA head of UNRWA was in Saudi, and he re, he was received by uh, Prince uh, Faisal bin Farhan. So I think the Saudis are understanding this, and they're and again it goes back to this regional security point. Now, what are they willing to do? I think now it's becoming now it got crystallized a little bit. Looking at the crystal ball now, there are not many sticks that they could use. This is the reality. But I think there's a lot of carrots, and it's not one carrot. There's a, there's a lot of carrots, and this is kind of the nature of the Middle East now. The nature of especially Saudi approach, the Saudi approach to the Iran confrontation with it it didn't really bring about what it wanted using the carrots incentivizing it has um and i think what they will utilize is a great deal of the carrots and the biggest carrot they have is normalization and i think they're communicating to the united states because they they they're not saying okay israel uh you're not going to we're not going to normalize relations with you in fact Israel is just reducing its own agency in Saudi perception by doing this. And now this is a discussion between Saudi Arabia and the United States and saying, listen, look at what's happening now. Look at what look at what your little your little trouble uh, problem child is doing. This is literally kind of the perception that okay. And as a result, this the, what we are going to ask for from you is a lot more because they're causing a lot more costs. And this is the kind of approach that I, I see. This is the anticipation. But in order for this to happen properly, there needs to be a solid Arab front. And I think this solid Arab front is important now. And I think it's part of the Saudi regional policy and international policy that it can't do it alone. That, okay, while other countries can't you, certainly view Saudi Arabia as their center, part of their center of gravity, Saudi Arabia also sees them as essential for regional stability and for their policy too. So they're creating this regional front. I'm sorry, they're not a regional front. They're an Arab front 
that will lead to a regional front, which is also, there is space of discussion between them and Iran. There's a great deal of discussions between Saudi Arabia and Iran. There's a great deal of coordination between them. And actually, the relations have strengthened because they force them to talk more and force them to talk more and reinforce the notion that they're not against each other here. And so all of a sudden, I think the idealistic perceptions and ambitions that the United States, as well as Israel, what they had is, is becoming less and less and less the longer this war continues. It's it's just fascinating. All right, I'm warning you now, I'm going to be inviting you back in the future, possibly to talk about <laughs> that last point on Iran, which I'd love to spend an hour digging into. Um, I've already kept you here much longer than I said I would. So we're going to we're going to stop here. Aziz, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, really a rich conversation where I learned a tremendous amount. I hope everyone else did too. For our audience, thank you for listening and watching. And you can follow Aziz on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it. It's at Aziz Al-Ghashian, A-Z-I-Z-A-L-G-H-A-S-H-I-A-N. I'll have that in the show notes. And finally, as always, I want to remind you to subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. That way you don't miss any of our great content. And you can also find a video of the podcast, as always, on our website at www.fmep.org. So with that, we're going to end it here. Thank you, Aziz. I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Thank you.